0: afternoon now. Even post meridian. (laughs) Huh? You don't know that time. (laughs) Uh yeah.
1: We'll just call it PM. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> if you got your Bible go through the book of Luke Luke chapter 24 Luke chapter 24 verse 44
0: Luke 24
1: verse 44 when you get there let us pray Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you and we praise you, God, for being God and for allowing us to know you as God. Please, God, help us to focus on you, to truly let our hearts be contending you, Father God, and listen to you intently, Father God. Let us hear and understand your word. Lead us and guide us in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin today in our journey. Uh, we talked about it some months back that we're going to walk through the whole Bible. Verse by verse, line upon line. And we're going to start that journey today. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, we're going to begin that journey in Proverbs. Probably Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then preferably by the grace of God, we'll all be back together. And then we'll start at Moses and walk through all the rest of the books of the Bible. And the goal and the intent is to touch every book, every verse, to discuss it, to dialogue about it, and to try to get some understanding of every single one, to not leave one verse untouched. And so hopefully it'll be a journey
0: that we could enjoy. How long it going to take us? God knows. May God knows. Maybe we can get done in five years. That, I think that would be great. Yeah, I think that would be cool. If we can make it in five.
1: <laughs> yeah, so we'll see.
0: Might can do it in three.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I doubt it. Yeah, let's talk about every verse. Some of them get dark and some of them get hard. But as a way of introduction, we're going to take away the words of Jesus here. Luke 24, verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. He said, he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So This is Jesus' discourse after his resurrection. And here he said that everything that went place in his life, all that he did was done so that it must be fulfilled what was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms. Some versions may say in the writings or the poetry. And here Jesus gives us the basic breakup of what we refer to as the Old Testament, which is where our focus is going to be for a minute. And he shows us how the Old Testament Uh, The Jewish people broke up their Bibles, which is a little bit different from ours, but I think it's instructive for us as we go through. They had three basic categories that they sectioned the Bible off in. First one, everybody knows, is the Torah. Those are the first five books of Moses. And here he says the law of Moses. Those are the first five books. And the next section in the Jewish Bible, Jesus referred to as the prophets. Now, the reason that this is important, because if you ever pick up a Jewish Bible and compare it to our Bible and look at the table of contents, they have 24 books in the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, while we have 39. And so a lot of people is taken back by that. because They're like, where do we get all these extra books from? Like How do we get 39 and they only have 24? And it's because the way they divide their Bible up. So in the second section that they call the prophets, these are the books of the named prophets, except for one. So they go Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then the twelve. That's how it is in the Hebrew Bible. So those books, they call the prophets. Now, in our Bible, we don't refer to Samuel, Joshua, and Judges as prophets. Those are historical books in our Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, they call them the prophets. And and with our Bible, we refer to as the minor prophets. That's Hosea, Joel, Micah, Nahum, and all those books. They got them collected as one book that they refer to as the 12. So when we refer to the minor prophets, we got 12 individual books. They have the, the twelve, which is one book. So that's part of the discrepancy. And what we got first and second Samuel, they just have Samuel. And it's all one book. And this book they call Samuel go all the way through what we call first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. It's just one book. And in the next section in the Psalms are the writings. That's where they put everything else. So for them, the writings are the poetical books, which would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalm of Psalms. And they also have in that Ruth and Daniel. They got those listed in there. Then they have the historical books where they got lamentations. That's part of the poetical books. And they have the chronicles. So this is how they compile theirs and, and it ain't 1st and 2nd Chronicles it's just the book of the Chronicles. So that's why their list is shorter than ours. Why when we turn to our Bible we have four basic sections of our Bible which we have the same one, the law then we have the historical books which is Joshua, Judges, Ruth 1st and 2nd Samuel and always through Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we go to The writings are the poetical books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms. And then we have the prophets, which is everything else, all the way to Malachi. So that's the separation. And as we go through this journey, we're going to use the way they set it up as a guide. But we're going to go through our chronology. So we're going to collect the books the way that we have them. But we're going to use theirs as a guide so we might bounce back and forth just a little bit. But it'll be explanation throughout them all. And that's the basic structure of our Hebrew Bible. And that's what we're going to be wrestling with and going through. And as our beginning, we start in the poetical books and the books of songs. But before we go, just as an aside, and it's something I'm going to remind you of when it talks about how is it that we're going to go through this journey? or How is it that we best understand the books of the Bible? Go to Joshua, Joshua chapter one. Joshua chapter one.
0: Verse eight Joshua chapter one verse
1: eight it reads said, This is the book I mean this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So this is God's admonishment to Joshua. And he said, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Referring to what Moses passed down. Say, don't let it leave from your mouth. That's another way of saying keep it with you. Don't forget you. But it's key that he says don't let it depart out of your mouth. And he connects that with, and thou shalt meditate therein day and night. So when we're talking about Hebrew literature or the Hebrew Bible, it was written as meditative literature. It was something that intended to be Repeat it and say it over and over again. And that word, meditate, I got to remind you, it ain't what we talk about today. Like when you listen to Oprah them and them deep folks that won't tell you, you need to take time for meditation, and they talk about clearing your mind and relaxing and just focusing on your breath and all that's from the devil. We don't do that. But biblical meditation, the word can mean to mutter over and over again. And the best example I can give of it is, like I said, I'm pretty sure all y'all at some point, have done this. Especially when somebody made you mad and you got in your mind, like, what you want to say to them. And you ever, anybody ever had that conversation before? Like, you waiting on them to come home or waiting on the call. And you rehearse everything that happens and you go with what you say. But you don't just do it in your head, you had a conversation like, man, they, they talking to me like that. And I ain't gonna you know I'm saying, I'm gonna see, when they come, I'ma tell them. I'm just gonna have to go on a beast plate and I'ma tell them. Cause they then they might say this and I'ma say, and you go over and over again and repeat the same thing and you have, cause I just can't believe that they said to me, uh she might think, uh I can't just let that go. Cause I'm saying, I know I post forgive and all that type of stuff. But uh-uh. sometimes some things people do and you have this whole conversation and you go on and you physically say the things over and over again. You ain't talking to anybody but yourself. But somehow you feel the need to repeat it and say it over and over again and you go over what you're going to say and you go over their response and you go over what happens and you mutter. That's the meaning of this word meditate. It means to mutter repeatedly. And so what the idea that they have is Joshua is supposed to be repeating and saying over and over again, thinking about it through speech in this physical activity, all the things that Moses had for him. And this is the way that the Hebrew Bible is set up for you to best benefit from it. And this is why some people have so many questions. Because if you read some of the stories. They have the tendency sometimes to leave out what we think to be crucial information. Like the book of Jonah. You have this poetic and. and, in grand story that builds up and you got this rebellion and great storm and a man swallowed up and he's rescued and he finally fulfills his mission and he speaks and he declares and he comes back and he's sent back to watch the city then God shows up and they have this dialogue and the book just stops. Like, like, where's the resolution? Like, Where's the ending? And a lot of the passages and a lot of the stories in the Bible are set up that way. It's because they're made to be meditated upon. It's something for you to rehearse and repeat, and you to think through, and allow God to speak, and allow God to to send you on a journey, and it opens up to you the whole world of the Bible. And so that's why sometimes you have things just introduced, then they pull it back, and you're like, that don't make any sense. Like they just drop that in the middle of there. Like what in the world they have to do with whatever he was talking about. But the story goes on and on, like everybody understands and it's because it's set up for meditation. And meditation is the main means for us to understand this Bible. We're supposed to go over it over again. Psalms 1 verse 2 it says that the blessed man he do what? He meditate on God's word day and night. He repeats it over and over again. It's his meditation, it's his thoughts. And it's that muttering, that re- that repetition that builds understanding. Psalms 119:97 I think it is, talks the same thing. Said I will meditate in thy law for it is my delight. It goes, and it's over and over we're encouraged to think about, to meditate, to repeat the things of God. And this is key for us understanding, and this will be success in our journey. Like I said, it's something we're going to bring up again, over and over again. And as we go on this journey, there are going to be times where we purposely, where I purposely mix up something or leave something open for the purpose of dialogue, and for you to meditate on, to take it back, to think about it, and then we come in discourse about it, and then during the question and answer times, in those times, because to build this habit of meditating on the scripture, to thinking about it, to repeating, and and and, and have it, just I'm saying, like little something of your teeth, you, you, have to, you have to keep it there for a little bit. That's what the word means to to to, to recite it over and over again, to leave it there. And another thing, just as an introductory point. The chapters of the Bible. God didn't put them there. There was a dude, I think his name was like Langston or something. In the 1300s. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury or something like that. And he made up the chapters in the Bible. This is something that he created. Because the Bible as he had it, him reading in Latin. Didn't have any chapters. There was no break. The breaks were just between the books. So he put the chapters in, in his study and in his teaching. And the reason I bring that up is. It's because as we go and as we study, we cannot allow the chapter breaks to break our thought. Because these are books. It's a collection of separate books that has been put together. And it's a continuation of thought. let are just giving an example of why this is important. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 1.
0: Alright, Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. Everybody know what happened in Genesis 1, right? Anybody know? What happened in Genesis 1, son?
1: Alright, God created the earth. How long did it take him? He did it in six days. What happened on the seventh day? He rested. So we got six days that's marked out for the creation of the world. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, it begins this way said thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them and on the seventh day god ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made and god blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all the work which he had created and made that opening is the conclusion to the thought that was going on in genesis chapter one but in our bible we have them separated because of the chapters That's why they begin with us, because it's the finishing of those first six days. And the seventh day, because uh Mr. Langston, it has been separated out and connected with chapter two, which helps create some of the confusion that people have when they try to understand the differences between Genesis chapter one and chapter two. But that chapter break allows you to miss the continuation of the thought, the summation that God had in his creation, because we just stop at six. Then we immediately jumped to two in the garden and we missed this summation in the summer. And actually, if you think about it, like, it ain't about a couple more lines. Like, why did he stop there? It wouldn't have been that bad to have just a couple more lines in Genesis chapter one to have a complete thought. But this was a man and he was doing his study and he was breaking it down. So we cannot allow these chapter breaks to break our train of thought. And we have to understand and try to see the letters as whole in the books as whole, as one continuous argument that has been presented. Like I said, a couple hundred years later, after that, that's when the verses came. Some other dude, Stephanus or something like that, he added the verses. And that's why sometimes you look at a Hebrew Bible, their verses are different from ours. They don't match up. It's because, especially like in Psalms, it gets sure enough confused because they numbered the titles or the headings so in the Hebrew Bible, when it said the Psalm of David to the such and such, that's verse one. Now For us, ours is down. That's just a chapter. So that's why sometimes you do back and forth references. If you got one of them fancy Bibles that tell you all the other stuff. And you're looking back and you're going back and forth like you're deep blue letter folks. And you want to see what it said in the Septuagint and all that other stuff. Your verses won't match up. It's because the way they're numbered. Two different people made the numbering system. But the point of that is that we can't use these things as grids to break up the thought of the Bible. And it also goes to my other point before we get into it. The Bible is not a collection of verses to be taken out. God ain't put them verses there. And especially as we go through the book of Proverbs, most people in their mind think Proverbs is just a whole bunch of verses where you can just pick one and have your proverb for the day. A false weight is an abomination to the Lord. And that's your one. You got to put it in your pocket. Hey, that's my proverb for today. The, the Bible wasn't designed to be understood that way. All of these are books and they have collective arguments. So we have to move beyond the verses and see how they all fit together. And that's going to be a part of our journey in this thing. And we're beginning in the book of Proverbs. And the first question we're going to try to wrestle in the book of Proverbs is who wrote the book of Proverbs? Go to 1st Kings chapter 3. Who wrote Proverbs?
0: I mean, 1st Kings chapter 4. 1st Kings 4, verse 32.
1: Well, we'll start at verse 29. Start at verse 29. It said, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding and exceeding much and Lord's of heart even as the sand that is on the seashore and Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt for he was wiser than all men than Ethan than the Ezraite than Heman and Chalcol and Darda, the son of Machal and his fame was in all nations round about and he spake three thousand proverbs and his songs were a thousand and five and he spake of trees of the Cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even of the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowl and the creeping things and fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. So this is an introduction, our closing to Solomon. And Solomon is the one credited with being the writer of the book of Proverbs. But if you notice, talks about the wisdom of Solomon. God gave him wisdom and said his wisdom excelled all the wise men of the east and all the wise men of Egypt. And it got the name dropping. All of these wise men that Solomon was far more wise than. And it says Solomon spake 3,000 proverbs. That's a whole lot of them. Now in the book that we're going to read, we got about a couple hundred. But it says Solomon spake 3,000. But it also says Solomon what? He spake them. So Solomon was saying these things. And Solomon was uttering these words. And it says Solomon had a thousand and five songs. In our Bible we got one of them. The song of songs. So Solomon was a dude. I say with a whole lot of time on his hands. This dude wrote a thousand and five songs. That'll show you that he was living in a time of peace and prosperity. He went out there fighting in war with his, like his daddy was. His daddy wrote a lot of songs too as a shepherd boy i don't think he reached a thousand and five not that we know of and this dude collected i mean he spake five thousand proverbs so solomon was a prolific dude about his time but as we go and as we journey through the book of proverbs we're going to understand that all of the proverbs in the book of proverbs are not solomon's And that Solomon spake these proverbs and somebody else collected them and put them together in a book. So as we move and transition, but we also want to take note that Solomon was a wise dude. But he wasn't just wise in the sense that he up there in the high and mighty with all these high thoughts that can't nobody understand. It says Solomon spake of trees, of hyssop, of beasts, of fowls, of fish. So Solomon was a scientific dude. He studied nature. And he understood things. And all of these things will be expressed and understood when we go through the book of Proverbs. So when Solomon speaks about nature, he's not just a loose dude just using a loose analogy. He studies these things. So Solomon was not just a psalmist, and Solomon was not just a philosopher, but he was a scientist. And he put all of these things out for us to learn from them. And God allowed them to be collected to school us. So let's turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. And
0: we're going to get in it. Proverbs chapter
1: 1. And I got the outline for this. But I ain't have no ink. I thought I had some. Brother ain't going to Kinko. I did. I thought I had some in the cabinet. (laughs) I really did. So I got up to print it out this morning. Went in the cabinet and it was an empty box. (laughs) So y'all gonna get your outline. But when we go, before we get in it, like I said, we're gonna go through. I'll just give it to you for a grid. uh, The basic breakdown of the book. So the way we're gonna break down the book is proverbs 31 chapters broken down into three sections like i said a lot of people think you just got one little verse and you get your little proverb for the day but it's three sections to the book of proverbs the first section is from chapters one through nine and that section is a a run of discourses or long speeches it's not them short little sayings that everybody think about when they have the book of Proverbs. But it's a long, it's long speeches in chapters one through nine. In that you have ten speeches to a son and four appeals from wisdom. And you'll see it as we go through. You got ten speeches or ten admonitions, as I call them, to a son. then four appeals of wisdom interjected in the midst of those. Then in the next section, beginning at chapter 10. And going all the way through the end, I mean to chapter twenty-nine, you got the collections of Proverbs. And in that section, there's a couple of different chapters. You got chapter ten through twenty-two seventeen. Those are the Proverbs of Solomon. And that's where you get the vast majority of those things that everybody's called Proverbs, those short pithy sayings that you can collect in there's one or two verses. Then starting at twenty two seventeen, you have the words of the wise. And in the words of the wise, you have a couple more interjections or discourses to the students. Then starting in chapter 25, you have the Proverbs of Solomon as collected by Hezekiah. And that goes all the way through 29. And then in the third section of the book, chapter 30 and 31, you have two collections from two kings that we don't know a whole lot about. Chapter 30 is King Argur, and he got his Proverbs or his wise sayings. And that he referred to as prophecy. And we'll look at that and try to understand why he called him the prophecy of Argor. Then in chapter 31, you have the sayings of a mother to her son, Lemuel. And this is a chapter that, that's a little bit confusing because it's attributed to the mother, holy. This is, this is the exhortations of a mother to her son. And this mess up a lot of people, especially the feminist women, when they talk about the Proverbs 31 woman, cause they always say, see, you know, a man wrote that, because look at that, There ain't a woman, can't no woman do all that. A woman wrote that. These are the sayings of a mother to her son. And now you might continue and say, see, mama, they, they want, well, they got too high expectations for their son. They think they're doing all that. But chapter 31, those are the expressions of a mother to her son. So those are the basic three sections of the book. So as we start in our journey, we're going through section one, which are the discourses, which are ten admonitions to a son and four interjections of wisdom. So we're going to begin in first chapter one. And chapter one opens up with an introduction to the book. And in this introduction, they tell you what we're going to look for. Like I say, all this is going to be in in outline form. When I go buy some ink. But I ain't been out in them streets like that. From verses 1. Through 7. Is the introduction of the book. And in this introduction. We're going to find a couple of things. Four things. That were supposed to. Happen to us for studying this book. You gonna tell us four things. That are going to happen to us for studying this book. And the results of those four things. Then we're going to learn the people, two groups of people who are going to benefit from studying this book. And then it's going to end with the thesis of the book. That's the introduction. From verse 1 down through verse 7. So we got four things we're going to get from learning the book. Two people who are going to benefit from studying the book. And then the thesis that sets up the rest of the book. So let's, let's track through it and get these four things out. Starting in verse one. Said the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instructions of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. A man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise in their dark sayings. So our four things we got in there, starting in verse two says the Proverbs of Solomon. And they're for us to know. So they're presented it to us for us to know. We're going to know. That word is yada. For us to have an intimate knowledge of. To be fully acquainted with. And we're going to be fully acquainted with. Wisdom and instruction. We're going to know wisdom and instruction. And now these things. These seven words. Are going to be the key words for the rest of the book. And we're going to get a deep definition of them as we go on but these are the first two wisdom and instruction so by studying this book we're going to be intimately related to wisdom which is a hard word to define especially this version of it and it shows up over and over throughout this book some 50 some time the word wisdom is formed. 30 sometimes it's this particular word and it's another word that in other places translated as skill Translated as craftiness. And so the basic idea that we glean from all these various uses of the words is that wisdom is the skill to apply what is known and understood. It, it, it's, it's the ability to do. So we're going to learn some skills. And when there's broad sense in the way that they're going, is, it, it refers to the skill of life. That we're going to be skillful life people. And that's what we're going to learn. That's what we're going to know. The skill of living through the book of Proverbs. Like I said, because it's the same word that's used when they talk about those dudes who built tents. Said they was wise at it. That mean they were skilled. They knew how to, they understood the craft. They was good at it. And it's the same thing he said we're going to glean. And the other word is instruction, which I like the better the word discipline. So we're going to get skill, and we're going to get discipline. We're going to know those. Be intimately connected with skill and discipline from this study of Proverbs. And that word, like I said, Hebrew is a very concrete language. If you look at the roots of it, that word means to turn the head, that instruction. Like I said, when I think about it, I always think about the Bible. I know the folks that, that, that only time where I just sit there and let somebody grab my head and move it all around. And sometimes you're in the shop and the barber, you trying to do something particular to your head. He grip it and he turn it back and might lean it back to get it at the right angle that he want to. That's the picture that is presented by this word, to turn the head. And it's key for us to get this and keep this connection. Like these are key words and they're going to come up over and over again because this one's going to be a big one because it's also translated correction, chastisement, discipline instruction these are all the various ways that this word is used but these are things that we're going to know it's the turning of the head and being skillful in life so when we study this book at the end of it we should be skillful and disciplined uh, we should know skill and we should know discipline and the second thing the second benefit so that's to know what we're going to know skill and discipline and the next one is to perceive so part of the purpose of this book of proverbs is to make us perceive not just to see but the ability to comprehend or to understand, like we use in our regular talking now, when you say, like, "You see what I'm saying," when I, we're not asking, "Do are the words floating out of my mouth like on a PBS cartoon or something?" But we're asking, "Do you understand the words that I'm talking?" And that's what he means here: to perceive the words of understanding. So you're going to understand the expressions of understanding. So deep words that explain things, you're going to grasp the meaning of them. You're going to be able to comprehend them. That's part of the purpose of this book. And the third thing he said, you will receive or to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. So you're going to receive the instruction. So you're going to receive guidance concerning wisdom. That's the right pattern of living. It's the ability to navigate in the midst of situations. Of justice, a better word would be righteousness. That's the right way to move and respond. So now you're going to know how to do it. You're going to know how to do it the right way. And we're going to get instructions from all these things. So justice is going to instruct us. Righteousness is going to be our guide if we understand these proverbs. And it says judgment. That's sound decisions. So sound decisions will guide us if we understand these Proverbs or as we study these. And the other thing is equity. It's a picture of tightening a rope when you make it straight. Flatten it out. That's the stuff being right. Uh, We would say fair, but fair ain't a good word for it. It's clean, it's even. There's no inconsistency in it. And his word, as we go through and study these words throughout the uses of the Proverbs, we're going to see this word here, it gets a bit big because it can be completeness and wholeness with things that are straight out. But these things will guide us as we understand the book of Proverbs. So we're going to know, skill and discipline. We're going to understand words of understanding and we're going to receive instruction concerning justice or righteousness, wisdom, judgment, right decisions, and equity. How life's supposed to be. Then we get this fourth thing that we're going to gain from this. And it said it's going to give or to give subtility to the simple and to the young man knowledge and discretion. And I like this, the poetry of it. We miss it a little bit in this English translation. Because the simple is those who are easily tricked. The naive will be a better translation of that. And it's a correlation with young folks. Those naive folks who don't know no better. That's, that's the way the word is used. And what he's saying is, I'ma teach trickery to those who can easily be tricked. That's that word, subtility. And I'ma give them a quick wit. They're gonna be sharp people. They're gonna understand the ins and outs of stuff. So you ain't gonna be able to trick. So I'ma make a trickster out of those who can easily be tricked. That's what the book of Proverbs is gonna do. It's gonna give you a wit. To the simple. And so that sends us into our two who's who going to benefit from this study. The simple, which is connected with the young. That's the naive, the young people. So this book is addressed and it has some purposes and young people will benefit from the study of this book. But the other group that will benefit from the study of this book. In verse five says, a wise man will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. So the wise men and the men of understanding, they're going to benefit from this book. Like, why would a wise man study a book that's supposed to teach you wisdom? He already got it. And the picture that is being presented here is that wise people, true wise people, they hear and they understand Proverbs and they increase their learning. They multiply learning. So those who are truly wise, they don't stop learning. You can always teach a wise man. Those who have understanding, they attain, they go after understanding, indiscretion. This is another one I missed, what it's going to give. Discretion. Discretion is discernment. The ability to differentiate between one side and the other. So these are the benefits that we're going to get. It's going to make us to know. It's going to make us to perceive, which is to understand. It's going to make us to receive, and it's going to give. That's wisdom, skill, discipline, right living, righteousness, judgment, guidance, discernment. All of these things that we're going to benefit. And who are the ones that are going to benefit? The naive, the simple, the young folks, and the wise folks. Those are the ones who are going to benefit from this study. And now we go into the thesis. This is the springboard for all the entire rest of the book. It says, and I'll skip verse 6, I'm sorry. And it says, these are what the wise men are going to increase learning and understanding to. It said, to understand a proverb in the interpretation, the words of the wise in their dark sayings. So in this increasing, in, in this multiplying of knowledge, they're going to understand a proverb. Now the word proverb, we didn't define it. Basically, most people, when they think of proverb, they think of a short, witty saying, something that compresses a deep, profound truth into a short statement. And that's technically true. But the word means a rule or standard, something you put up to another to judge it or to gauge it. So a proverb is a condensed something that we use to discern or to, the, in, to gauge patterns of life. And that's what he's saying. You the wise, they're gonna understand Proverbs. So the rules, those, those guidelines for patterns of life, they're gonna grasp them and understand them. And the words of the wise, when they were expressing and they being deep, said so they're gonna understand them in their dark sayings. So the mysterious and the secret things, the riddles, they're gonna be able to comprehend them. Now, in ancient times, <clears throat> from my reading, I understand, like it was a big deal for them. in a way they 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 impress one another to show how wise they were. Where they created riddles, it's like a game they played, and they go and test one another with riddles. And we see that in the Book of Judges. Who did it? Anybody remember? Huh? Samson, when he was down there and he get ready to get married, he had his riddle. Out of the eater comes what? Sweetness or something like that. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Out of the eater meat. And from the devourer's sweetness. That was his riddle. And it was a big challenge they put out. And what this saying is that the wise, the people of understanding, who study studying these proverbs, you're going to be able to comprehend those type of dark sayings. Ain't nobody going to be able to catch you up. Or, or deceive you or trick you. Or, or, or withhold truth and understanding from you because they're going to be given to you. And so now we go into our thesis statement in verse 7. This is the thesis of the book. This is what he has written, and this is the foundation of it. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Say it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, this is going to be our first little thing that we're going to wrestle with a little bit. A lot of people are going to have time struggling with. What does Solomon mean when he says the fear of the Lord? And what we're going to do is we're going to let that hang there for a minute because this phrase or some form of it comes up at least about 16, 17 times in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord, those who fear the Lord. So this is a key. And this, like I said, it's the thesis statement. So we're going to leave this and let it hang. And as we go, take jots and notes to let Solomon teach us concerning the fear of the Lord. But here he gives us a glimpse unto what the fear of the Lord is. He said, it is the beginning of knowledge. And that word, the beginning of knowledge is it's the head. It's the head of knowledge. Like I said, this is poetic writing. And we got to let the poetry sit there. Because poetry is beautiful, but it can sometimes be confusing. And this is one that's confusing. I'm doing a lot of reading. A lot of people don't like this verse. And the way we get most of our translations at the beginning is they go to other chapters where Solomon explained it and they take the meaning from those and apply it to here. And they don't allow, allow this just to sit because all this one say, is it the head? So the question is, is it the head as in meaning it's the first thing when it comes to knowledge? Like you got to get the fear of the Lord first. Then you can get all the other knowledge. Or is it saying that is, is the key of knowledge? You can't have knowledge without the fear of the Lord. Or is it saying it's the foundation? Like all other knowledge rests on this. He don't explain it. He just leave it out there. It's the head. But what he do let us know is that it's the opposite of being a fool. So what we can glean from this in this parallel statement, the way they are opposed with one another is that fools don't have the fear of the Lord. That's a deep saying. Let that sit there for a minute. Fools don't have the fear of the Lord. And he identifies a fool here. He said, fool despises wisdom and instruction. And we all know somebody like that. I'll give you an example. Anybody know somebody that every time you try to explain something to them, they already know what you're saying? Even if they just say the opposite of what you said? They'll be like, man, that's what I was saying. You see, yeah, 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 Like, dude, you just didn't say that. Then be like, man, see, everything in the Bible is just a mystery. Can't nobody understand it. And I'd be like, nah, man, you can understand the Bible. Yeah, everybody can understand the Bible. You know what I'm saying? I be trying to let people know that everybody, like, hold on. That's a fool, according to Proverbs. Because he said they won't allow anybody to teach them that's what it means they despise wisdom so when you trying to help them navigate they won't listen to it and it says they despise instruction that's correction and anybody know anybody you raise your hand in your heart that they get upset when you correct them like you try to tell them they they do something completely wrong and anytime you tell them the right way you always got to fuss at people like I, i was just trying to do that's a fool Uh, That's a disposition of foolishness. So wise people, those who fear the Lord, they listen to instruction. They accept correction. And they allow people to teach them wisdom. That's why the fool don't show up in the purpose of the book. You read in in the first six, the people who are going to benefit from it, fool is not listed. Because a fool won't hear instruction. A fool won't allow themselves to be corrected. And this book is supposed to teach you about instruction, about correction. So a fool won't benefit from this. And that's why you can have the people, I'm saying, that that, <clears throat> that get locked up and they read the book of Proverbs. I'm saying they're supposed to learn about life and you give them and they don't understand nothing. Because they won't hear it. People who are set in their ways and they got a pattern of living and you can't tell them otherwise, they're not going to benefit from this. And they won't benefit from nobody teaching them anything because they are fools. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the head of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this is the theme that's going to carry us all the way through the book. The contrast between foolishness and the fear of the Lord. The contrast between foolishness and the fear of the Lord. And the exposition of what it means to fear the Lord and how that is the beginning of knowledge. Are y'all with me? That's the introduction to the book of Proverbs. And now we're going into this initial part of the saying. We're going to track through this. Now here, starting in verse 8, we get the the first discourse. And in this first discourse, I call it the first admonishment. So the picture that we got here in these discourses, these are speeches given to a son, a disciple, somebody who's been schooled. And in this first chapter, we're going to look at the first two speeches or the first two admonishments. Now, in this first admonishment, verses eight and nine, this is one admonishment. We're going to get what he want him to do. And the benefits of doing it. That's how this eight and nine is broken down. And this is monies. He's going to admonish him to do something. Then he's going to tell him the benefits of doing it. So verse eight and nine, it says, my son. Hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. For they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy necks. This is the first admonishment. Hear the instructions of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Now in this admonishment, we got one command broken up into port in a poetic parallelism. So we parallel statements. So the command or the admonishment is to the son. And what did he tell him to do? To hear And forsake not. That's the parallel. Hear and forsake not. Now that word hear. Means to listen intently. For the purpose of doing it. And in the concrete. The Hebrew language. It gives you the picture. Of somebody like listening in. In a room and they leaning in. When somebody talking. You like nosy folk. So what he's saying is. You lean in to the the commandments of your father so we need to hear that listen intently with the purpose of doing them and do not forsake and so the parallel to listen intently with the purpose of doing them is not leaving them alone so once we hear the commandments once we hear the law we take it in and we listen intently to it and we don't put it down so at what point can we forsake these laws never not if we listen to this admonishment. So hearing and never putting it down, hearing and never letting it slip, is the admonishment we got here. So that means there's some memory got to go on, and that's why we're supposed to do what? Meditate. Repeat these things over and over again. And now he commands. He parallels commandment and law. Commandment with Torah are teaching. The law with mitzvah are the principles. So the commandments, the teachings, and the principles are parallel. They're the same thing. And then I like the way he does he does this, and he does it over and over again. Who is supposed to do the teaching?
0: The father and the mother. What teaching is more important?
1: Neither one of them. He parallels them. So just like you're supposed to hear the commandment of your father, you ain't supposed to forsake the law of your mother. So he put these in parallels that show you that it ain't just daddy that's supposed to lay down the law. Mama lay down the law too. And it ain't that mama that's responsible for teaching the children. Daddy need to teach the children too. And neither one of them is more important in this endeavor of the training or the admonishment of this son. So to the same degree that you hear mama, I mean you hear father, you don't forsake the law of mother. And there's this continuous parallel that he got here. So this first admonishment, what are we supposed to do? Hear and don't forsake. What are we supposed to hear? The law and the commandments. Who are we supposed to hear it from? Our parents. Are y'all tracking with me? And this is the benefit of it in verse 9. It said there shall be ornaments about your head. And this is Once again, beautiful poetry. Because this could be understood double. And I think he left the meaning there. Because the head, what is the head of the child? The parents. And that word, the ornament, is beauty or adornment for the purpose of making pretty. So if you hear, if you don't forsake, you're going to bring beauty to your parents. And it's going to be a necklace about your neck. So not only are you crowning yourself, the double meaning of the poetic expression can also be applied to what will happen to your parents. So once you beautify yourself, you beautify your head and your head is your parents. But he also continues the picture that it's going to be like a necklace around your neck. So us hearing and not forsaking is us making ourselves pretty or beautiful. We are adorning ourselves by hearing and not forsaking. This is the what? And the why. So we need to listen, to hear, to understand, to not forsake. And by doing so, we're going to make ourselves look real good. So if you want to adorn yourself, if you want to look pretty, listen to your parents. <laughs> Those are the beautiful people. And now we get the second admonishment, starting in verse 10. Now this admonishment, we're going to have a, a what,
0: then a who. A what, then a why,
1: then a who. That's how we're breaking this chapter up. It's going to be a what, then a who. A what, then a why, then a who. Like I said, it's going to be on your outline when you're giving. You can fill it all in. It's going to help you remember. It's got a what, then a who. A what, then a why, then a who. So let's look at the what, then a the who. this is the first what starting in verse 10 it says my son if sinners entice thee consent thou not so that's the what what is he telling us to do don't consent to the enticement of sinners that's the what. what this is what you ain't supposed to do now that word entice means when they draw you in but the poetic expression means when they open up the door create a void it's like sometimes you, y'all have been in a hallway where they got a, a, a nice air conditioning system going on and you got two doors at the end and sometimes when you open one door, it can suck in the other door and make it close. That's the picture that he's giving here. Like when they open up the door, when they create a vacuum for you, don't you feel it? That's what it means to consent, to go therein, to yield to, to, to consent is to fill that void. So that's the the what. They're going to create a void. They're going to open a door. And don't you feel it? And now this is we'll take a pause here. And this is where the meditative part comes in at. As we think about this, how is it that sinners create voids? Because if we just take the regular expression, when we go in to the who, it's going to give us an example. But if we think about this thing, sometimes the enticement of sinners is not something that happens externally, but they create a void internally. Because they can open me up to certain desires I did not have with uh, apart from certain engagement. Like sometimes you you watch the TV and they make you want to go buy certain things. That's creating a void. When they open up something in you, there's an enticement. And that sometimes you hang around with certain people and they produce within you certain desires for certain activities that you wouldn't know is wrong. But that creates a void. And his admonishment is, Once that void is created, once something is opened up in you, don't you feel it or fulfill it? And it's something that you think about and as you meditate on this thing, you you think about life and you be like, man. When I watch this, this make me want to do this. But if I listen to the admonishment of the father, I won't feel it. I don't go into those voids or those desires. I recognize them as enticements. So the thoughts that pop up in my mind, the desires that pop up in my heart, those are enticements. Those are doors being opened up. And if I hear the admonishment, it's for me not to enter in, not to fulfill them, not to feel it. Are y'all tracking with me? And that's just the what? You don't allow the sinners to create a void for you to feel. You don't allow them to open up a door for you to go in. And he goes in and begins To talk about it and to give you a poetic description of the who. Who are these sinners? This is what they say in verse 11. These are the folks and they out there talking. They say, if they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us and let us all have one purse. So this is the enticement of the sinners. So this is the who. These are the sinners. And it's the picture of, of, of bands of people trying to get you to be their friends, basically. It's like, come, you come be with us. We gonna lay, we gonna lay weight. That means we gonna hide out. We gonna lay down and hide to shed blood. That we gonna lurk privately. That means we gonna be dirking, ducking in and out, sneaking around for the innocent so you got the picture of people calling you out into this secret life this life of the night and they're trying to get you to come be a part of them and then they have a two-fold enticement here the first one is to come do what we're doing we finna lay wait. you come on and we finna benefit ourselves like man our house is gonna be full we're gonna get a link we finna be rich come on you do it with us and then there's an enticement to be in agreement with them It's like, put your lot in amongst us. Let us all have one purse. So let's come and let's connect and let's be one. Let's be a family. This is the enticement that they have. So come do what we're doing and come be a part of us. And the the what that we got to do is not consent when we get this drawn. So the sinners, those who calling us out into this lifestyle, they say, nah. We're not, we don't be a part in what they're doing. And more than that, we don't come into agreement with them. And that's something for us to meditate on. And they say, let us have one purse. That you become, you be a part of us. Let us all be one family. Let us share in this thing. It's like, nah, don't you cast your lot in among them. And then he gives us the second word. So that's the first word. What? If they open up a door, we don't feel it. Who are the ones? Those ones calling us out into the street. These are the sinners. The next word, he says in verse 15 my son, walk not in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. It's like, it's the next what? What you don't, what you do. So you don't consent. You say you don't walk in the way with them. You refrain your foot from their path. To walk in the way with them is you go after their pattern of life. So they set up a way of living, a pattern of living. They blaze a path and you go down that trail. And you don't do this with them. So you don't go down their trail and you don't be with them. Then the other one he says, and you refrain your foot. It gives a picture of you stubbing your toe. You 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 stomp your toe to keep it from going on their path. So you don't walk their way and you don't even let your foot go on the path that they're going on. And this is once again beautiful portrait. Because now he gives us the why. So to what we don't walk their way And we don't let our foot go on their path. Why? It says for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. So their feet run to evil. Now look at the parallel that he's given. Now his admonishment to us is we don't do what? Walk in their way. And he talks about the life of these sinners. He said their feet run. So he's showing a contrast of the life of one who hears the instruction of the father. We walk. But these folks I hear, as the old folks used to say growing up, they live in their fast life. They run. they out there. they chasing it. They're getting it. But our pattern of life is a walk. We're patient. We take our time. But he also contrasts the foot versus feet. We stop our foot while they have their feet. And this gives us, if we think about this, one foot versus many feet meaning that if you listen to these instructions and if you do the what, you're probably going to end up alone. And it takes your willingness to stand against the masses for you to be that you have a vast majority versus a solitary one you have them running versus one walking and it's us being contrasted against them and this is the life that you have to be willing if you're going to listen to this admonishment that we don't wean we wean in a herd but we're also willing to stand by ourselves and to be alone and he said they make haste That means there's a rushing. So he gives this picture of their life being heard. it being fast and it's like a flood going through the streets. While our life is just single, you by yourself, you're willing to stand alone and you're going against this tide because they're running. There's a rushing. There's this stampede of iniquity coming your way and you have to be willing to stop your feet. And not go along their way. Uh, Y'all track. Do you see the picture. Or or the poetry there. One foot. Versus many feet. A rushing and a running. Versus a walking. And we're stopping while they're. moving headlong. And and, and then we got verse 18. I mean 17. It says surely in vain the net is spread. In the sight of any bird. Now what they got to do with this. Like Solomon got sleeping. Forgot what he was talking about for a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it says, surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Let's take this picture a little bit. Now, just think about it. If you was out in the field, you had a whole bunch of pigeons or uh, crows or whatever out there in the field. And you go in the midst of the field, in the midst of the birds, and you finna set up a net to trap them. What you think the birds going to do? They're going to fly away. If you run in the midst of them and you start setting up your trap, they're just going to run away from you. And that's the picture that he's giving. Like surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Like you're wasting your time if you're setting up a a trap for a bird in its sight. They ain't going to fall for it. Because birds got sense enough to know
0: when an enemy coming and when they need to flee. So you can
1: be a bird brain and know when to run. That's that's the basic point. And he goes and he connects this with verse 18. It says, and they lay in wait for their own blood. They lurk privately for their own lives. And this is a contrast into the original saying in verse 11. because they was enticing you, come, let us lay wait for, to shed blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent. But now he's saying these people, the why you don't fool with them is because they lay wait but it's for their own blood. So they're setting up traps for themselves and they do not recognize it. They don't have the smarts that a bird have. They don't see that the trap is being set and know to flee, but they lay in wait, but it's for their own blood. They lurk privately thinking they finna get somebody, but it's for their own lives that they're lurking. And this is why you don't fool with them because the life they're living is for their own destruction, not for their prosperity. See, they're thinking they're going to get rich, and they're thinking they're going to prosper, and they're thinking they're going to fill their house with all these treasures, but what really what they're doing is they're capturing their own soul. And that's the picture that he got. And he's saying they ain't got the smarts of a bird. They don't see the trap, and they don't know to flee. They don't recognize that they're being set up by their own way of living. So that's our what, our who, our what? We don't consent when they entice. We don't feel the voice that they create. Who is the they? The sinners who call us out into a lifestyle that ain't quite right. The what? We don't walk down their path and we stop our foot from even going close to them. Why? Because the life they live in is going to be a trap for their own selves. And they're going to catch their own selves up. And it's going to cost them their own lives. And now we get to, woe In verse 19, it says, so are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which take away the life of the owners thereof. Like, hold up. Now, all this time he's been talking about sinners. Folks sharing blood, capturing innocent people. We understand we ain't supposed to fool with them people. And now in this verse, he says, So is ever, so are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain. So everybody who's working to get rich, they're just like these sinners that are enticing you. And that's the woe. Like, hold up. You got to think about that. I'll down with you. We're not going out there trying to murder people, but not trying to be rich. I That don't make no sense. But he said, they are greedy of gain and that's going to take away their own lives. So the thing that they're in pursuit of is going to destroy them just like those who are lying in wait to destroy others are about to destroy themselves. So, so is everyone that is greedy of gain. So we pause and think about this for a minute. If we're not to consent, that means feel the war created by the sinners. If we are to stop our feet and not walk in their way when it comes to the appeal of the sinners, how should we respond to the greedy folks? So the desires created by the greedy, should we not consent unto them? The enticement of them and the pattern of life that they, they, they live, should we keep our feet away from that lifestyle? Should we refrain our steps from going after the path that they created? Because in this proverb, he, they are connected with these people. What if it's a pastor? And he preaching a sermon that make you want a whole bunch of stuff. He enticing you to get rich. Right, do you supposed to not listen to him too? Do you supposed to not consent? That mean you allow him to create that void in you and you yield to it? Hmm. To be greedy. To be rich. To get blessings and breakthroughs in the manifestations and BMWs and Bentleys. And that's the wall we got. That's the place we gotta hold up now. Cause I was tracking with you. And he don't give any distinction. He grew from all together. He said everybody who was greedy of gain. And it sounds similar to the, to, to the sentiment of, of, of Paul. When he said those who desire to be rich desire what? A snare. Like they're setting up a trap for themselves, those who want to be rich. Do you think Paul read Proverbs? It's possible. Because that's just what the proverb is saying here. Those who are greedy again, they long after that which is going to take their own lives. And so we have to treat the greedy people just like we treat those murderous people. We have to treat the greedy people just like we treat those who try to put in us evil and illicit desires that are going to destroy our lives. Because greed is an evil and illicit desire that's going to destroy your life. If the writer of the proverb know what he's talking about. Are y'all tracking with me? And we'll pause right here at verse 19 and next time we'll pick up on the first appeal of wisdom. So wisdom in verse 20 going to interject and make their appeal. So we got Proverbs chapter 1 through 19, done. It might take us 6 years. (laughs) We got
0: any questions?